As has already been mentioned this afternoon, what a joyous privilege it is for each of us to have the ability of both disposition and mind and body to come together on an occasion such as this one, to engage in the singing of these beautiful hymns of praise to God, to edify one another, shortly to have that opportunity to surround the table of our blessed Savior, and of course also to enter into a consideration of a portion of His holy and divine will with the intent that we may each be strengthened thereby, and perhaps even in the days ahead, to walk more closely to the pathway that he would have us to walk as we journey through this life toward that ever-ending march toward eternity. As has been announced several times, we have, are continuing this evening a consideration of the book of Revelation. If I might spend just a moment in brief review partly because that aids us to remember the more times we're able to consider or repeat something, but also for it will move us toward the lesson that we shall consider tonight. We noted throughout this series of studies, first in our opening lesson, a general introduction to the book of Revelation, setting before our minds some of the thoughts that will in fact aid us all throughout it, regardless of the chapter. But then in our second lesson in the series, we especially cast the spotlight on chapter 1, noting there the introduction, the salutation, as well as that marvelous vision given to John in which he saw the Savior. Then in the third lesson of the series, we looked at the first three of the brief seven letters written into the churches. And in that list, we noticed several common items, one being the format of those letters. We noticed that there was a salutation followed by a general commendation, Then, in addition, we noticed a reproof, followed by an exhortation, and finally, to end it, we appreciated a grand promise given to those that would overcome. Amongst that series, we noted the letter to Ephesus, the letter to Smyrna, and the letter to Pergamum. And at that point, that ended our lesson last Lord's Day evening, but that set the stage for the fourth one that will begin tonight. And so, if you would, I would encourage you to note with me, beginning in chapter 2, verse number 18 is where we'll start tonight. And on that occasion, we'll notice the fourth of these letters, this time written to the church in Thyatira. And so, some comments would be in order. And it would certainly be well for us to revisit and allow God to speak to us first before we make any additional comments that might be observed. So if you would, please read with me Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. But that which ye have already hold fast till I come." 
And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star, he that hath an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I've prepared some comments displayed to my left, to your right, in which we may at least note some of the highlights in this series of written thoughts to that church in Thyatira. As we noted earlier, a bit of history could be very beneficial to us. And in regard to the church in Thyatira, might we observe that it wasn't located terribly far from Pergamum, about 35 miles southeast. And as we notice, the tremendous industry that was so prevalent in that area of Asia Minor involved textiles. And in particular, as I've noted in parentheses, it involved the dyeing of clothing in a beautiful and royal color of purple. In the New Testament, in fact, we encounter a lady whose occupation was of this very means. In Acts, the 16th chapter, when Paul came to Philippi on that beautiful occasion, he encountered a woman named Lydia. We are told that she was of Thyatira and that she was a seller of purple. She came from this city, and her occupation was the very one related to the dyeing or the selling of those clothes that had that royal color. That type of clothing, by the way, was in high demand by the rather well-to-do in the ancient days of the city of Thyatira and in that first century. But with those comments made, Jesus identifies himself in verse 18. He calls himself the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like fine brass, taking us directly back to chapter 1. For there the vision of him in verses 14 to 16 was exactly this feet finally polished as one who had walked through a furnace, and furthermore whose eyes were penetrating very much like, in fact, described as a flame of fire. To note that, Jesus again clearly identifies himself as the originator of this message. And is it not interesting that verse 19 immediately informs them of a high series of commendations? In fact, let us again notice verse 19. I know thy works, and thy charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. The Lord, in fact, began with a bit of commendation in a number of areas to this church in Thyatira. is listed on that sheet. Their love, their service, their works, their faith, and what's more, they had exhibited growth. He says the latter is more than the first. They were stronger than they once had been perhaps numerically, but almost certainly at least in a degree spiritually. At this point, we might well pause and note this appears to be a brilliantly glowing congregation of the Lord, highly praised and recognizing of the fact that they had experienced growth. But oh, how quickly things change. Verse 20 begins with that rather interesting word as it appears in the King James, notwithstanding. Notwithstanding, despite the fact of these earlier thoughts that appear to be good, I have a few things against you at Thyatira. As Jesus made that observation, the rest of the comments in many ways will surround this idea of what was lacking in Thyatira. Notice the next point to be observed. They are reproved because of false doctrine. And notice again who was the central figure in this. 
Who was it in Thyatira that was the central figure in the encouragement of this false teaching? That woman Jezebel. And immediately to our mind comes another Old Testament reference. We had observed at the outset of this series there would be many. Here's yet another. In the Old Testament, who was Jezebel? In 1 Kings chapters 18 and following, we read about this woman who was the wife of King Ahab. She, in fact, was the daughter of the king, if you will, of Ethbaal. And she had reared up and grown to worship and to serve this king, this god, if you will, named Baal. When she came in to be the queen of the children of Israel, she brought into Israel and introduced the very worship of Baal and, in fact, encouraged it. In the Old Testament, at one point, she's described as a tremendous influencer of that which was evil. And all throughout the Old Testament record, she is described as a woman of wickedness, a woman opposed to the will and service of God through Elijah. There was at the church at Thyatira a woman not unlike Jezebel. It is not to say that her name was Jezebel, of course. Here John uses this word in a way so that those saints would recollect immediately the character of that Old Testament woman and appreciate that within their midst was one not unlike and who worked in a way as evil as that Old Testament princess, that Old Testament queen of Israel. To say all of that is to say, what did this woman Jezebel do in Thyatira? Verse 20, she calleth herself a prophetess. And furthermore, she teaches and seduces my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Here was a woman who claimed to be a prophetess. And in terms of that which she taught, she encouraged these very individuals of that congregation, these very people who were the servants of God, to engage in the eating of meats that had been sacrificed to idols and furthermore, encourage them to commit fornication. We immediately gain an impression about this lady, this person, and the influence that she had. And doesn't that lead us immediately to appreciate the fact that though she had opportunity to repent, she had not. Might we pause for a moment as we have done all throughout these letters and remind ourselves of a valiant lesson. These letters, though written to these congregations so long in the past, are just as needful and just as essential for you and me still today. Perhaps a gigantic lesson concerning the church in Thyatira, let us pause a moment and consider the aspect of failed leadership in the church. As the New Testament unfolds, we appreciate and in fact see so clearly the essential importance of correct, strong leadership in the church of our Lord. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are described in great detail a number of qualifications of those men who would be privileged to occupy the office of an elder. And they are given the oversight, the leadership of the Lord's church at that location. Acts 20 verse 28. To them you and I are admonished to obey them. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. And furthermore we are to, are to appreciate their labor in our midst. First Thessalonians 5 verses 11 and 12. To say all of that is to say that these are to watch for our souls. We should give them the greatest of respect, for they are to be men sound in the faith who are able to, in fact, oppose the gainsayers. Titus 1 verse 9. 
those men are to have a sufficient knowledge of this book so that false doctrine cannot get a hold in a congregation. That had not happened at Thyatira. For whatever reason, the leadership was sufficiently weak. Perhaps they didn't even have appointed elders, but error had crept in. This woman Jezebel was given right. She was given the character of those who followed. Such ought never to have happened. In fact, we appreciate that though women are very important in the New Testament scheme of things, they are not to take the leadership position in preaching and in teaching and the actual conducting of the worship services, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. But here in Thyatira, a woman was occupying that position. And we notice that again she was teaching that which was an error, encouraging that which was untrue and false. And again, proper leadership would never have allowed that to happen. May we be thankful for our elders at Pippin and encourage them in all ways that are good. And may we also lift up the hands of all elders everywhere who in soundness and in great strength fight for the sincere and trustworthy cause of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Here at Thyatira, as we continue by noting the things that were to follow, after that reproof, we quickly make observation that they were encouraged and exhorted to hold fast that good thing which they did have. Verse number 25. But then the letter rather rapidly closes. As they were admonished to overcome, a promise was stated to be before them. What was that promise? First in verses 26 and 27 that they would rule with Christ. We each can look forward to the grandness of ruling with Him. In verse 28, that very short verse, to possess and have the morning star, another reference to eternal life, and all the glory that associates to it, the greatness of the morning star, and to be able to live with him eternally. But then, this letter in closing, one more time urges that those who have an ear hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And with that said, this letter to the church in Thyatira closes. We can't help but wonder in the years that followed, did they in fact rebuke this lady named Jezebel, this one who was called after her? Did they put in place a proper, correct leadership? We can certainly hope that they did. The New Testament, of course, sheds no more light on that church in Thyatira. But as chapter 3 opens, we encounter the church at Sardis. I'd invite you to read with me the first six verses of Revelation 3. And let us not only note the church in Sardis, but learn a valiant set of lessons that are so beneficial to us today. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis, Write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, but thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before me. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come on thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I included a blown-up map at one point that you and I can consider 
And we'll do that in just a moment as we look at a, perhaps another picture of where these churches were located. But for the time being, the church in Sardis. As you notice, this one only encompasses six verses and hence is considerably shorter than the letter to Thyatira. But as before, let's notice first a historical record. Let it be observed that Sardis was one of the chiefest cities in the Roman Empire. Perhaps ranking in Asia Minor second only to Ephesus, it was truly a monumental city in the Roman Empire. As such, it was positioned some 35 miles south of the city of Thyatira. In one sense, it reminds us of Ephesus. Namely that here was another great place where Diana was worshipped. That very goddess that was the centerpiece of the activities of the worship in the city of Ephesus so long ago. But might we also note, yet one more time, this was a place where there was one of those imperial temples where the emperor was worshipped. Individuals would enter to worship the Roman emperor. Another one of those, in addition to those churches of last Sunday evening, was also in Sardis. Jesus begins by identifying himself in verse 1. First, as he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Another direct reference to chapter 1. In verses 4 and 5, as well as in verses 15 and 16, it's identified that there he held the seven stars in his right hand and also associated with the seven spirits of God in the revelation to be made known. Again, Jesus is the speaker. But notice what he does next. At this point, where do we find the commendation for the church in Sardis? As we noted, following the pattern that we have come to expect, we would observe a commendation to the church. Might we notice a slight departure here? There wasn't much good to say to the church in Sardis. The only commendation that might be found anywhere in the letter is that brief observation in verse 4 that there was a few names that had not defiled their garments. He had nothing to say good about the congregation as a whole. Just a meager few. Oh, what language there is in that little word few. Few there were who had, def- who had not defiled their garments. In fact, as we ask then, what was the difficulty? Verse 1 had started again in a somewhat promising way. You have a name that you live. But there's that little word and, and are dead. A name that you live, but folks at Sardis, you're dead. I would suspect that to this point, that's the strongest language among any of the seven letters. We may have thought that the letter to Ephesus was harsh. You've left your first love. We may have thought the letter to perhaps Pergamum was harsh. You're where Satan's seed is. We may have thought the letter to Thyatira was rough. There's a Jezebel among you. Here, you have a name that you profess to live, but you're dead. Oh, what a mouthful that is. To think about a congregation that was dead. Might we, in fact, ask and look a little bit more carefully. In fact, there's a word, a phrase that appears in verse 2 that speaks volumes. Let me read it in both the King James again as well as in the American Standard. It reads, I have not found thy works perfect before me in the King James. In the American Standard it reads, I have found no works of thine fulfilled. Could it be that they in Sardis had often good intentions, but they never completed anything? 
They perhaps had grandiose ideas, but they never brought those ideas to fruition and thus never directly accomplished anything. You have a name that you live, but you are dead. That's a rather harsh-sounding phrase, isn't it? And no doubt it gained their attention. But let's look a little deeper as to perhaps some of the other difficulties in this church at Sardis. And as we do so, might we observe in verse 3 that they were commended, in the, or at least in, or urged to remember to what they had received to hold fast and repent. Might you and I pause and ask about spiritual life today? Do you and I have a name that we live? We should. We are in fact called to wear the name of Christ if we are His. And did He not say in Romans 8 verse 9 that if we wear not that Spirit, then we're none of His? You and I as Christians, in fact, the first six letters of that is Christ. We are to have a name that's alive and well and wear that with great pride and proudness in the sense of the one who died for us. He is the captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2 verse 10. He is the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 5 verse 9. He is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14 6. Oh, the greatness. You and I could speak volumes about how great Christ is and what He's done for us. These in Sardis perhaps knew that, but they were dead. You have a name that you live, but you're dead. Might it be that in regard to Sardis, we can each ask that personal question of ourselves. If I'm supposed to wear the name of Christ, do those about me appreciate that it's a name that's alive? Or do they gain by observing my life one who's dead? For if I'm dead in the sense of spirituality, then I am not bringing any fruit to Christ. In fact, I am harming His cause and hurting the very thing for which He died, the blessed body of Christ. This church in Sardis was in exactly that case. We do not know how large the congregation was, but we know there were only a few that hadn't defiled their garments. The rest of them perhaps lived very much like the world. You couldn't tell the difference between the world and them. They were dead. All the while, they needed one more time to come to life through the blessed character of the gospel and to let Christ live through them and to be those very people who would be a bright and shining light for all the world to see. But that's what was missing. That's what these were lacking in the church at Sardis. How often are we admonished to be folks who in fact are seen as those bright lights for Jesus? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5 verse 16. And how often do we also see texts like Romans 12 verses 1 and following. There the admonishing that we are to be daily sacrifices. Not just once in a while, but daily having those who in fact are honorable and holy in the service to God, we're beginning to see what was missing in Sardis. They were dead. Might we observe at this point as we notice the exhortation to remit, to remember, to hold fast, to repent? They were in error because of this failure and needed to repent thereof. But in so doing, do we not close this letter with one of the most gigantic statements that answers so clearly one of the common misconceptions and false teachings that encumbers the nature of our world. I would ask you to notice verse 5. <clears throat> he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Question. 
we are often told that once a person is saved, he or she's always saved regardless of what he or she may do to the contrary. In light of a host of other passages, but especially this one, that doctrine can't be true. In fact, if a person's name is enrolled in the book of life, this much we know, that person at that moment is saved. That's all there is to it. For in Revelation 20 and 21, those who are allowed to enter heaven have their names in the book of life, period. And yet here we notice that it's possible to have a name blotted out of that book. Once a person is saved, he or she must remain faithful or else they forfeit that salvation. They can again be lost. This church in Sardis needed to know that, for there were some names that had already been blotted out of that book and many more were going to be if they didn't repent and straighten up. They were dead. With that, this letter to the church in Sardis closes. Again, we can only wonder, what did the future hold for them? Did they gain the Lord's message in the sense of following it, becoming more urgent in pursuing it? We can hope so. We can hope that they again were quickened to life by the character of the gospel and cast aside this character being dead. We next come to the sixth of these churches, the church at Philadelphia. Perhaps among these various letters, this one rings a note of interest for us in a way not unlike some of the others, for the word Philadelphia sounds so familiar. There is a city in our land by that name. What about the church in Philadelphia? As you notice again, the actual letter is not terribly lengthy. I'd ask that you read it with me. Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven for my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To the wonderful church in Philadelphia. As before, let's first notice at least a point or two of history. The city of Philadelphia was again on a main road in the Roman Empire, and as such would have been often visited as far as its location, some 20 miles east of Sardis. And isn't it also interesting that it was an exceedingly fertile area? In fact, volcanic eruptions were often known in the area, and as such it was perfect for growing of grapes. And that was a prime area of work or of occupation in the area of Philadelphia. Jesus again identifies himself with little difficulty. One who is true, one who is holy, one who has the key of David. And another Old Testament reference comes to our mind. David was that second of the kings of the United Kingdom of Israel. 
And in the Old Testament, time and again, it was noted to him a kingdom would be his, and it would be a kingdom that would last forever. To Mary in Luke 1, verses 31 through 34, she was told that that one that she would bring forth, that son that she would bear, would in fact reign over the house of David forever. One more time, we see Jesus possessing that key, and might we note at that point that we are in serious trouble if he is not currently holding that key. There are some in our world who teach he doesn't yet hold it. John said he did. Jesus admitted he did. Might we notice that he quickly goes on to say, He that openeth and no man shutteth, shutteth and no man openeth. The strength and power of our Lord is exhibited in his body and in the character of bringing forth God's divine providence and will. Those verbs, open and shut, will be very significant in just a moment. For that quickly brings us to note the commendation of the church in Philadelphia. They had maintained faithfulness to the word of patience, to the word of God, and to that they were highly commended, so much so that Christ said, Since you've been faithful to keep my word, I will keep you from the hour of temptation. That hour of trial that was soon to come on the world, they would in some sense be secured and protected therefrom. And isn't that a wonderful message? Isn't it wonderful to know that the Lord is right there with you when you're faithful to Him? When you, crack, when you grasp His hand and don't let go, we can rest assured He won't let go of our hand. If we depart from Him, that's the way it must happen. He will not depart from us. Paul in the Roman letter in Romans 8 stated something very similar to that, didn't he? Beginning in verse 35, he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughters. Nay, in all these things, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, the bond that is there between we and Christ when we're faithful to Him. We begin to see that there's a brightness to that church in Philadelphia. They had been faithful to Him. And in response to that fact, they are highly commended. Might we notice something rather remarkable about this congregation? It is said of them that they have a little strength. What does that mean exactly? The word strength can be used in a number of ways. It would appear, it would appear that the church in Philadelphia was not exceedingly large. They were small in number perhaps, but at any rate they had a little strength. Nonetheless, they were commended. Do we not learn a valiant lesson? They were highly commended because they did what they could with what they had. The best is not always found in a large congregation. Sometimes we lament the case of small country congregations. Perhaps we often think about how much might be done in a congregation of a thousand or two thousand. And true enough, faithful indeed, if that's the case, much could be done. But we ought not think too poorly of those small congregations, for if they are faithful, if they do what they can with what they have, they, like Philadelphia, are highly commended in the eyes of heaven, and they will be held up highly in his, in his esteem. And isn't that wonderful? We are not of those who are required to be in a congregation of 10,000. 
if we are faithful to do what we can with what we have, having been blessed by God, we will be considered faithful. That's a wonderful lesson, isn't it? And that's what he told Philadelphia. You have a little strength, but a door has been set before you that no man can shut. And because you've done what you could with what you had, you've been faithful to my word. I will protect you. That challenges us even here at Pippin, doesn't it? We may not be as large as the churches in Dallas, Texas, or in Los Angeles, California, but if we are faithful to do and discharge the duties that God has given us and do what we can with what we've been given, we will be accounted faithful in His name. That should bring a smile to our face too, shouldn't it? That, of course, is our aim, that of our elders and all of us, to simply be faithful servants to God, recognizing He'll judge us individually on that day of accounting, Revelation, or Romans fourteen twelve. We learn that great lesson by virtue of this church at Philadelphia. But as we are of interest to note that the exhortation nonetheless was given to them to hold fast, verses 10 and following, you hold fast to that faithfulness you've exhibited and you let no man take the crown from you. You let no man take your crown. Each of us look forward to that day that we will have a crown of righteousness having been accounted faithful in life. We should, in fact, look upon that such that we are unwilling to let anybody take that crown from us. Satan wants it. He wants to take it from us and destroy it. We should desire to maintain that with the greatest of urgency because eternity depends on it for us as far as being allowed into heaven. He said, let no man take your crown. Verse number 11. May we notice in statements like that, a great warning and a great encouragement that those folks needed due to the persecution in which they were. But is it any less interesting to us today? Is it any less exciting to us to think about the accomplishment of acquiring a crown given to us by the Lord? We too don't want anyone to take it from us, for we understand what that crown means. It means hearing the good words, Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. Matthew 25, verses 18 through 23. To say all of that is to say that this church was given one marvelous promise, as had been true of all the others. Verse 12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God to be a pillar in the temple of God, to again hold and realize the power of eternity with Him, faithful near His beautiful presence. Later we will see in chapter 21 the grandness of being with Him exactly in this cubical city as it's there described. But it's a place whose gates are so beautifully pearl, whose foundations are the most precious stones and gems of the day. It's a place, you see, where the streets are likened into paved gold, where there's a crystal sea that's there flowing with the water of life all day. We look forward to that place. Here you can be a pillar in the temple of my God if you'll overcome. One last congregation of the evening, the seventh and final one for tonight, the church in Laodicea. We perhaps have often heard about the church in Laodicea, and hence perhaps it's a bit more familiar to us than some of the other six have been. But as we notice, let us read, beginning in Revelation 3, verse 14, through the end of that chapter, the letter to the church at Laodicea. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither uh, neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The church in Laodicea. Again, perhaps as much as any of the other six, some historical notes here are very significant. First, Laodicea was an exceedingly rich ancient city. And by exceedingly, I'll explain more in a moment some ways in which we know that. It was situated about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It was a center of banking, another indication of its wealth, but also a center for textiles as well as a medical school was in the city of Laodicea. And the specialty of the medical school was it was a place that they made the finest eye salve in the ancient world. Folks from all over, if possible, if they had eye problems, would make their way to Laodicea. For again, the finest and the best known medicinal healing eye in the ancient world was manufactured in Laodicea. All of that takes on an added significance when we begin to note the way Jesus refers to himself. First, in verse number 14, the Amen. We've often noted in the scriptures the usage of the word Amen. It literally means, be it so or so be it. And he, as the Amen, is the very one who brings to a closing all things. Furthermore, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That last phrase doesn't mean that God created Christ. It means he was the originator, the source of the creative activity of God. As explained in Colossians 1 verse 16, that by him all things consist. The firmness and thoroughness is quickly heightened when we notice that to this church in Laodicea, there's not a single commendation given, not even in the slightest. The Lord had nothing positive, nothing noteworthy of good to say to this church in Laodicea. Isn't that sad? Couldn't find, didn't make note of anything noble, worthy, positive, good, godly, appropriate. No commendation whatsoever. He immediately began in verse 15, I know your works, Laodicea, and that which I know is this, that you're neither cold nor hot. Neither cold nor hot. Lukewarm you are, you make me sick. I'll spew you out of my mouth. We each can appreciate the possible goodness of refreshing cool water. And haven't we all enjoyed that on a hot day like we've had the last several? But by the same token, even hot water has its benefit. It can, in fact, relax the muscles. It can be used to do other good things. But what about tepid water, lukewarm water? What good is it? It serves neither purpose we've mentioned to this point. You're neither cold nor hot, Laodicea. You make me sick. I'll spew you out of my mouth. 
He said, I wish you were either hot or cold, but you're neither one. May we not also learn at this point a rather valiant lesson in terms of that very character, neither hot nor cold? In fact, isn't it amazing that these in Laodicea didn't even perceive it? According to verse 17, what was their perspective? They say, I am rich and increased with goods. I have need of nothing, knowing, knowing not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We noted that they were lukewarm, but they thought that all was well. That's even a sadder note, isn't it? It's one thing to know that things aren't well, but things weren't well and they didn't even know it. Things weren't well. In fact, they thought all was well. They thought they were rich and physically they were. But the fact is they didn't have Christ and hence they had nothing. It doesn't matter. In fact, in terms of the physical character, without Jesus, we have nothing. It's a fantastic observation. And yet one more time to notice in verses 17 and 18. The fact that the saddest of all, they missed the whole point. What about our circumstance? You and I then should often recollect, look thoroughly into the blessed nature of the perfect law of liberty, and as we noted this morning, to appreciate and make changes when necessary. To be apart from God and not know it. To in fact think that all is well and to not appreciate it is so terribly sad. We notice in this that what is it that they were counseled to do? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. They thought they had gold, but they didn't have the kind of gold they needed. That thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. They thought they had all the clothing they needed, but yet they were naked in the eyes of the Lord, spiritually bereft of all things needed. Furthermore, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Finally, anoint thine eyes with eye Now we see the whole reference to the eye capital of the ancient world. They made the best physical eye there was, and yet they were spiritually blind. Jesus said, I'm urging you to obtain from me the true spiritual eye so that you can see clearly, that you can truly see how wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked you really are. Oh, what a letter was written to Laodicea. For you see, they had no idea apparently what state they were really in. Today, may we ever have a tender, compassionate heart in which as we open the Word, we will recognize the state we're in and ever strive to remain pure and righteous in the eyes of God so that we never are in a state like this. It's no wonder then when we see the exhortation given to them. Verses 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Furthermore, be zealous and repent. We've noted a common theme of the exhortation to repentance throughout these letters. And one more time, it was true of Laodicea. You need to repent. You need to come to a recognition of just how miserable your state is. You don't need to be lukewarm. You need to be on fire for me. And hence, what about us? Am I on fire for the Lord? Are you on fire for the Lord? Does He sit enthroned upon the throne of your heart? He needs to be there. For in fact, if He isn't there, He isn't Lord at all. Acts 10.38 May we never forget then the fact in these passages, one last tender invitation is given. I stand at the door and knock. 
Laodicea, I'm standing at the door and knocking. I have urged you to repent. I've urged you to buy of me gold tried the fire. Open the door, let me enter your heart, and I'll sup with you and you with me. And thus, there's that promise that Jeff read to us earlier about the beauty of overcoming. If you Laodicea will, in fact, repent and overcome, you can come over and live with me. And there's the promise. If you and I will overcome self-Satan and sin, meander through the path of this life, walking the straight and narrow pathway that leads to glory, we can come over and live with Christ and be with Him forevermore. You see, the letters to the seven churches of Asia are as pertinent, essential, and needful today as ever. For they have challenged us to, in fact, observe the faults in those churches so that we will not make those same mistakes. And furthermore, the thing...